today we're going to talk about sin. Lust, adultery, and murder. And that's just King David. I haven't even gotten to you guys yet. <laughs> Thank you. It's, it, it's coming, trust me. But the honesty and transparency in this psalm is worth paying attention to. It's worth emulating. And before we even get started and throughout this sermon, I want to ask, can we be honest about our sin? Are we honest about our sin? Because we should be. Now the difference between the psalm we're going to be in this morning, Psalm 51, a penitent psalm, versus the psalms of lament that we've seen the past few weeks, the psalms of lament are about distress from an outside enemy, someone outside of you. It's doing something to you. Someone's persecuting you. Someone's coming after you. Your, your situations are disappointing you. Those are psalms of lament, crying out to God for what someone else has done, some other outside enemy. But a penitent psalm, the word penitence, it, it means grief or sorrow. Penitent psalms recognize I am the enemy. We are in distress because of what we have done. And this is a psalm I take people to often. This is a real heart check. Because when someone's struggling with a sin, someone is in a sin, or is wondering if they have been or can be forgiven, I take them to this psalm and say, do you view your sins like this? Do you view your sin like David does? Have you truly repented? So open your Bibles. Please, and we're going to look at Psalm 51. So this psalm has a structure. We're going to be in this psalm for the next two weeks. So there's three major sections and a couple sections within each of these. The first major section is the problem, verses 1 through 6. Sinful man, holy God, how do we reconcile these two things? Section number 2 are the petitions, verses 7 through 12. The petitions are this sinful man before a holy God, crying out to God, asking Him for pardon and for purification. And then this closes as good psalms do in praise, recognition of forgiveness and of restoration and of renewal. So verses 13 to 19 are going to be praise, individual and corporate. And there's a nice clean break in the middle of these petitions. So this week we're going to work, work, uh, focus on sin and repentance. Next week we're going to focus on renewal and praise. So let's start in 51 with the introduction. We will get to that as well. Psalm 51, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. 
Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, my prayer this morning is that this psalm is the prayer of every person in this room. That every one of us recognizes that we are corrupt to our very nature. We are transgressors. We are full of iniquity and sin. But you are a merciful God. You are a God who loves his people. You are a God who blots out the transgressions of those who are penitent at heart. So Lord, I pray this morning that this would examine us, would search us, that your word that is living and active would work on our lives, that your spirit would work within us, that our minds and our hearts and our actions would be transformed, that we would turn from our sins and turn to you and be known as people of repentance who are continually turning from our old selves and the ways of the world to turn to you. But most importantly, knowing through, through Christ we are forgiven. And that we are a people of praise because as wicked as we are, you are so much more gracious. And I pray that this would be a challenge and an encouragement. And that you would be glorified in everything that is spoken and done here today. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Psalm 51 begins with this introduction, subscript, to the choir master. This is a worship song. This would not make it as a positive hit. Uh, this would probably not play too well in, in popular Christian circles. But David wrote this to be sung. Think about that. How many of our worship songs or songs that we love on the radio are dishonest about our sin? This is what worship sounded like in Israel under David. This is why the Psalms are preserved for us, because we should shout for joy in, in the victory of our God. But we should also cry out over our sin. And the Psalms give us everything that we need to know in order to worship God properly and understand our standing before Him. To the choir master, Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is in the biblical sense, gone in figuratively and literally. If you understand, if you remember the story. And if you don't remember, I want to tell you what happened here because to understand this psalm, you have to understand what prompted it. So if you would, turn to 2 Timothy, or excuse me, 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you don't know where it is in your Bible, it's going to be a few books to the left, four or five books to the left. So what happened in chapter 11? There's a woman, Bathsheba, who's bathing on a roof. She thinks she, she's, uh, no one can see her, but the king has a palace that is above the city, and so the king's looking down, and he sees this, this woman bathing. He tells the servants, I want that one. Brings her up. They do what, what, what men and women do. They have a child. This is a married woman. Her husband is a valiant man. He's an honorable man. 
When David finds out, he urges Uriah to go back. Go back to your, to your wife so maybe she'll think that it's your child. He's so devoted, he lays at the doorstep of the king. He says, I will not lay in my own bed while my men are still in the battlefield. I will lay here on the ground until you send me back. David has to do something about this because what's the best way to cover up a sin? With another sin. David's adultery convicts him, but he doesn't want to be found out. So he tells his trusted general to bring Uriah to the front line. Put him in the, in the, in, in the heat of battle. And then when the battle gets at its worst, everyone else draw back. King David, murderer, adulterer. The last sentence in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel says, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That is the understatement of the Old Testament. I want to pick up in verse 1 of chapter 12, and I want you to see how Nathan beautifully draws this out of David. Now, Jesus uses simple imagery in parables, but this is going to be going on all throughout Scripture. Nathan weaves this beautifully. And I want, there's a few things in, in the context of this passage that I want us to pay attention to. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and he said to him, Once upon a time, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and, he grew, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he, the rich man, was unwilling to take one from his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the, the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. David is right in saying so. He does deserve to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, because he had no pity. Oh, the wisdom and the ignorance of David. Nathan said to David, you are the man. There should be a long pause there, because David's draw, metaphorically speaking, is on the ground at this point. He now makes the connection, and I am this rich man, who has many wives and many concubines. There's this one poor man who's Faithful in my kingdom, I take his wife and make her my own after I kill him. Thus says the Lord God, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. God said, anything you ask, I would give you. You are the king of my people, but you steal from my servant. Notice where God lies the blame here in verse 9. Why have you despised the word of God to do what is evil in his sight? Why have you despised the word of God? Nathan the prophet, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, recognizes that this egregious sin that is so selfish and thinks of no one else 
is despising the word of God, a sin against God alone. And then he gives the indictment, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite. You did not pull the trigger, so to speak, but you gave the order. You struck him down with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him in the sword of the Amorites. And he goes on to say that whatever you have done privately, I'm going to do publicly. I'm going to make your wife sleep with other men in front of you so that you know what this feels like. Pick up in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin, and you shall not die. This is amazing. David does not deserve this. The Lord loves David in the midst of his sin. I have sinned against the Lord is the correct response. But immediately, Nathan said, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. He deserved death. He pronounced his own death sentence. But he was spared by a merciful God. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. For those who belong to the Lord, there is not condemnation, but there is consequence. Now, this is what's going on in David's mind when he writes this. This is transpired. We don't know exactly when he wrote the psalm, but we know that this is why he wrote the psalm. The gospel explains the problem of sin. The problem of sin is within man, and the answer is within God. But the gospel also explains the process of repentance and forgiveness that God uses to restore man. David is a man who needs to be restored to God. He needs to repent and be forgiven. And this psalm becomes an example to us. These penitent psalms are here so that we can learn from the sins of others and follow his example. This is good to emulate. So before we begin our text, the question arises, well, when do we stop repenting? Let me tell you, we stop repenting when we stop sinning. As long as we sin, we need to repent. Repentance is necessary. It is perpetual. It is part of the Christian life. It means turning. I'm turning from my sin and turning to Christ. And the gospel rhythm of this psalm is a theological goldmine. I wanted to do three weeks on this, but Sean talked me out of it. (laughs) Blame to Sean. No. Um, I could do a month on this psalm, so I'm going to try to move through a lot. But in the gospel rhythm of this psalm, we see the mercy of God and the sinfulness of man. We see the necessity of, of pardon. We see the restoration of man and the declaration of the good news. This psalm is the gospel. So I want to pick up in verse 1. Proper. So just so you know, in the Hebrew Bible, the, the introduction is always verse 1. So we're usually a verse behind and we, we skip over that. But uh, this is verse 2 in the Hebrew Bible, in case you wanted to know. Uh, have mercy on me, O God. The basis of verse 1 and 2 is everything that, that follows after it. There's a cry here. There's an important plea to the mercy of God. That's where he must start. 
Have mercy on me, O God. This is like a guilty murderer standing before the judge, falling at his mercy. Don't give me what I deserve. I deserve to die. Have mercy on me, O God, my King, my Judge. And an important lesson when we think about our sin, how you view God is how you will approach Him. Because David understands God's nature. He is a merciful God. And what does he appeal to? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. This word has said that we've, we've talked about several times so far. Loving kindness, as in some translations, covenant faithfulness, God's love toward his people that is unshakable, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. You are a merciful God who loves his people and is compassionate toward them. That's why I can cry out to you because of who you are. I have no hope within myself. He appeals to his character. He needs God's mercy and his steadfast love. Why? Because of his transgressions, his iniquity, and his sin. There's a problem. Have mercy on me. Blot out my transgressions. The problem is a judicial one. The word transgression means to cross over, means to cross a boundary that is, that, that is forbidden, means to, to, to break an, acceptable, an accepted standard. And transgressions deserve punishment. This is a judicial problem. It is a breach of trust. Blot out my transgressions. And if we don't understand the culture, we don't understand the, 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 the picture here. So what blot out means is when they would write, uh, because the paper was not uh, vellum or whatever, not, not vellum, but papyrus, whatever they were using, um, it, it was not in a ready supply. So they would write once, and if it wasn't a, a document that was to be preserved, it would be blotted out. So they would take a, a, a sponge or a wet cloth, and they would blot out the ink that was on the paper. They would also write the sentence of an accused on paper. So what he's saying is, I have a judicial problem, I am guilty. Blot out the record of my sin. Remove it from the books. This is his first problem, a judicial one. He's got a need for God's mercy in verse 1. And he's got two more needs in verse 2. Need for washing and for cleansing. The need. He needs purification and he needs correction from a merciful God. Wash me thoroughly. This phrase in the Hebrew, um, it, it, it means to, to launder me. Like, scrub me, beat the dirt out of me. Wash me thoroughly. Because of my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. This is a ceremonial language. Purification. Wash me. Launder me thoroughly. Cleanse me. Purify me. When I was young, my parents tried to do this. They tried to launder me, beat the sin out of my body, and wash it out of my mouth. It didn't work. Um, it was still there, but parents don't quit trying. But the, the, the psalmist gets the sense of this. Like, it is within my very body. I need to be laundered. I need to be cleansed. So there's a second problem. There's the judicial problem, but there's the spiritual problem. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. This word iniquity means depravity. It means the, the perversion of my very nature. I am rotten to the core. I have a spiritual problem. I need to be laundered from it. I need to be made clean. 
and cleanse me from my sin. Sin is a behavioral problem. We've got the judicial problem with transgression, the spiritual problem with iniquity, and a behavioral problem with sin. You've heard the definition of, of sin to miss the mark, to fall short. But we, we miss the Old Testament picture of sin, if we all, or excuse me, of wickedness, if we only talk about sin. All three of these terms are, are needed to get the, the, the full picture. Judicial, spiritual, and behavioral. Our wicked condition is not just behavioral. It is, it is judicial. We deserve consequences. We deserve to die. It is spiritual. We are wicked before a holy God. And so these three terms give us the completeness of the distortion. I am guilty. I am depraved. I am sinful. I need your mercy, your washing, and your cleansing. And in the Old Covenant, they had two remedies for this. They had the, they had the sacrifices in the washings, the blood sprinkled, and the water covering, the cleansing. In the New Covenant, through Christ, we have the complete propitiation, the full price paid. And so we have equivalents to these for the sacrifices. We're taking this this morning. What they did in the Old Covenant was they would kill an animal. Blood would be shed for the covering of sin. In the New Covenant, the spotless lamb was shed for our sin. And so instead of having to throw blood on an altar, we come before a table and celebrate the blood of our Savior and the body of our Savior for us. The sacrifice of the Old Testament has become a celebration in the Lord's Supper. The ceremonial washings that would happen in the Old Covenant Covering yourself from head to toe. Cleansing every spot of your body, recognizing that I am filthy head to toe. Is now replaced by baptism. So we are reminded that when we are baptized, it is the finished work of Christ. You have been delivered. You are in new life. This is finished work. This is past tense application here. The ceremonial washings and sacrifices that Israel needed is now sure in Christ. And so we have these representations in the Lord's Supper and in, in, in baptism. And we see it looked at in this, this passage, this call for washing, this call for, for cleansing. So this is the foundation of everything else. Here's his state. A holy God, a completely sinful man in need of his mercy. So step one, in repentance, admit you have a problem. Step one, for I know my transgressions and my sinner ever before me. Step one to re repentance. Hi, my name is Tim. I'm a sinner. Oh, a, a reference if you've, you've been through that. My sin is ever before me. This is the man after God's own heart. We love the David who dances and who slays the giant and uh, who does all these other amazing things. But this is the man after God's own heart, who is broken over his sin. My sin is ever before me. Notice what he doesn't do, though. He doesn't remind God how good he's been, how many laws he's, he's kept. God, you know I did all this all these other days. My sin is ever before me. It is an ever-playing movie reel in front of my eyes. I cannot get past my own sin. He's under no false impressions about his sin. So in repentance, you must know your sin and know your God. 
Verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This is the confession. The word to confess means to say the same thing, means to be in agreement. God, I agree with you. You are holy, I am wicked. You are right, I am wrong. I confess against you and you alone. We must know who our guilt is to, you only. 1 John 1 says this. 1 John 1, 8-10. through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Every one of us should say these words. My transgressions are ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned. If you cannot say that, His word is not in you. If you think you're good on your own, you are a liar. And you are not a man or woman after God's own heart. But everyone who knows that they have been forgiven can say these words. I have done evil in your sight. It is God's sight who determines good or evil. We don't, we're not the arbiters of truth. We're not the arbiters of moral standard. I have done evil in your sight. You are the one who determines good and evil, and I have broken your laws. So you might ask, what about Uriah? What about Bathsheba? What about the people of Israel who feel the consequences of this? I would argue that they feel the effects of sin. But sin is not against someone else. Sin is against God. When we sin against God, other people get hurt. But our sin is not against them. It is against the holy God because we're not breaking their standards. We're breaking his. And if you understand that, if you understand that it's God's standards and you are sinful, then you can say confidently, I've sinned, done was evil in your sight against you only, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your actions. God, you are justified. You are right in what you say and do. I recognize my sin and you are blameless in it. I cannot blame you. And if you give me what I deserve, I deserve it. He doesn't make excuses for himself or take his sin lightly. Even if you don't forgive me, I'm still to blame. I'm not blaming you. Whatever I receive, you are justified in handing it out. Do you know that? Do you know that if you were to, any punishment you are to receive, you deserve it and more? God is just. Every sin will be punished. There is no sin that goes unpunished. It will either be taken with Christ on the cross, or you will bring it to your death. But God is merciful to those who repent, to those who recognize their sin and their God. But he takes it a step further and he recognizes the source of this. He takes it even back further. My sin is ever before me, but I'm not the orig- or, or, I am the original problem, but it's, it's bigger than me. Look at verse 5. Behold, this word means look, pay attention. I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is parallelism in the Hebrew. In Iniquity, I was brought forth. In sin, I was conceived. Both of these language for, for birth, down to my, my, my very nature, conception, 
Before I took a breath, I was a sinner. This began there. There was no time in which I was not a sinner. Behold, brought forth and conceived in sin. Not just that he sinned. He's a sinner by nature before he sinned by choice. This is the problem of original sin. This is the problem that caused people a, a lot of difficulty. Because they love to think that people are good when within themselves. You cannot read scripture and think that mankind is good. If you're not, your eyes are closed. Or you're reading it upside down or something. You cannot read this and say, I was conceived in iniquity. All throughout the scriptures. We see this. The origin of guilt is from the beginning. It is within me. I am the problem, not the outside. We sin because we are sinners. It is our nature. It is who we are. We do what we are. It is a condition of human nature from our first father, Adam. This is what Paul gets to in Romans chapter 5. As I said, it's a theological goldmine. Turn to Romans chapter 5. It's a doctrine generally called headship, meaning we have a representative. Adam, our first father, our first representative, mankind. Adam just means man, means mankind. He's the representative for mankind. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. Not just that Adam sinned and we pay the penalty for his sin. In Adam, we all sinned. We read this earlier, but I want to pick up later on in Romans, 55, or Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 is about the, the understanding of justification. Romans 4 is that we are justified by faith. All this must be read in the context of faith. This is not Jesus died for everyone. It is in the context of faith, but it is very particular. Because Jesus came specifically as a second Adam. So we're going to pick up in Romans 5, verse 17. For if, because of one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. See the comparison here. One man, Adam. One man, Christ. Christ, is, Christ came to replace Adam. Through Adam, the, the, tread, the trespass corrupted all of humanity. The coming of Christ will redeem a new humanity for himself. Look at the parallel. It gets even closer here in verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, one trespass, all men, Adam's sin as our head, as our representative, transferred sin to all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. People get tripped up when they read all men. Got to read chapter 4. Justification by faith. Through faith, justification for all men. For, as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Through Adam, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was conceived in my sin. Now the law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abound all the more. So that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our inherited depravity, our inherited sin, and our imputed righteousness explained here. So now, the grace that the psalmist is seeking is seen clearly through Christ Jesus. Because of our faith in Him, because we are justified in Him, we can now look forward to His return. 
We know we have eternal life. The fullness of the gospel we see in Romans 5, but we see it in part in Psalm 51. See where I'm going here? Help to understand the nature of this. So the answer to the sinful condition of humanity is the second Adam, who is sinless to bring about new humanity. Amen. All right, jumping back into verse 6, which is a parallel to verse 5. Behold, again, this is meant to draw these two verses together. You delight in truth in the inward being. You delight in wisdom in the secret heart. This is a contrast between who I am, a sinner by birth, and who you are, what you delight in, what you do. This word truth here in the Hebrew emet, it means faithfulness. It's not just truth in the way we understand it. It, it means that we are faithful according to God's standard of truth. Let you require us to be faithful according to your truth. You delight in truth in the inward being. It, we must have truth where it counts. There must be divine work and instruction inside. This is not an outside-in transformation. This is an inside-out transformation. These two words here, inward being and secret heart, uh, roughly covered place and shut-up place in Hebrew. These are both synonyms for the womb. This connects verses 4 or 5 and 6. I was brought forth birthing language. I was conceived, conceiving language, and inward place, inward heart. So this is all, these are all um, conception and, and birth words. Why does this, this, this matter? Because he's saying the problem is within me at my birth. The solution is from you at a new birth, a different kind of birth. So this is regeneration language. This is new birth language way before we get it in the Gospels. Think about that. He recognized the problem is to his very nature, in my very birth. But the solution is that you work in me. My God, who you work truth in me, you make me faithful. You give me wisdom. You impart wisdom in me in the secret hidden places of my heart. You give me a new heart. My nature is sinful. But I need you for a new nature. David recognized I am incapable of my own, on my own. If I am to live again, if I am to have new life, if I have any hope, you must do it. God gives truth and imparts wisdom, this inside-out character and commitment transformation. And we know this as regeneration in the New Testament. We know this as the Spirit working within us to teach us truth, to teach us wisdom, so that we become new people and we are no longer under Adam and no longer slaves to our first nature. We are given a new nature, the nature of God. It is marked by truth and wisdom. Everybody following me? I wanted to stop there this, this week, so I'm going to try to get through the rest of this. Um, but that is so good and so strong. I want to spend more, more time on that, but we can't. So for the next, uh, what do we got, six verses, we're going to split these into, like I said, there's a natural break here. So we're going to focus on, on the first three, which actually have six petitions. You see six petitions in verses 7 through 9. Purge me, wash me, let me hear, um, let my bones rejoice, hide your face, and blot out my, my iniquities. 
So he goes from stating the problem to now getting into the petitions. We're going to look at the, the first three because they are concerned with, with pardon, um, with what, who I am and what I've done being reconciled before you. Uh, they are looking toward the cure, and we'll cover the next six next week. Um, this first one here, purge me. So um, purge, it, it literally means to descend me, to Free me from the effects of, of my sin. Reverse the sin that is in me. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. If you do this, I will be clean. Purge me with hyssop. This branch comes up often. There's so much symbolism here. Purge me with, with hyssop. Why is this branch mentioned? Why is this important? It is vitally important. Here's why. This was a branch that was used to sprinkle blood. It was used to sprinkle blood on the doorposts in the Exodus. It was also used to sprinkle blood on unclean people, lepers specifically. Sprinkle blood on lepers to cleanse them. It was also used for temple sacrifices to sprinkle blood on the altar. David says, purge me with hyssop. Not just a, a sprinkle, purge me with it. David sees himself as a spiritual leper. He sees himself as wickedness that needs to be cleansed. And so, purge me with hyssop is, is blood language. It's atonement language. We see that in Hebrews 9. Turn there with me. Like we saw earlier, we're going to see Old Covenant, New Covenant connections here. Explicitly stated in Hebrews. So Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 18. I want to try to move through this quickly. It's a big section, but it's important to get it. Bless you. Hebrews 9.18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. So David knows he, he needs ceremonial cleansing, and this is going to be described here. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop. And sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Everything needed to worship God needed to be purified before God, needed to be sprinkled with blood by a hyssop branch. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And this is important. Look at this here. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That is why in the Old Covenant, with God's people in the tabernacle, blood was shed day and night continually because they continually sinned. There's a better covenant. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of heavenly things, everything on earth, the tabernacle was meant to be a copy of the heavenly things. For the copies of heavenly things, um, it was necessary for them to be purified with these rites but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than, than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which were copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. David was saying, I need to be sprinkled with blood. I need my blood to go on the altar so God will, will forgive me. And the priest would go once a year, the day of atonement, into the holy of holies and make that atonement for sin so people would be right with God. But Jesus... Entered not into a holy place made with hands, but entered into the heavenly holy places. Once and for all, goes on to say here, 
nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. Every time David sinned, he had to pray for blood, and he had to, to shed blood to be reminded of his sin. What a greater covenant we have that our Savior shed his blood, not repeatedly, but once. For then we'd have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. We are that wicked. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The purging of hyssop, the cleansing that the psalmist is praying for, Jesus did. One time entering into the holy of holies, sacrificing himself. And just as it, as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The gospel answer to this is not like David. We have to be continually beating ourselves up over our, our own sin and needing to atone for our sin every time we sin but looking to Christ who entered into the Holy of Holies for us, knowing that through our faith in him, we are justified. We are in the new Adam. We are new humanity. So we can be on the edge of our seat and wait for him who comes to redeem those who've been redeemed by his grace. Amen? This psalm sets up the gospel so beautifully. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. This ceremonial cleansing. It's not the first time and the only time we see this in the Old Testament. Look at Isaiah 1.18. Isaiah, it'll be up on the screen. I'm going to do it quickly. Isaiah is the gospel of the Old Testament. Understand, God said, let me reason with you. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, it's dark red, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, guys, it's another red, they shall become like wool. Anyone ever tried to get blood out of white clothes? It can't happen. This is how amazing the blood of Christ is, that blood is applied to us and we become white. This is just supposed to blow your mind. You know what white, pure-driven snow is? You know what clean wool from a lamb is? After my blood is applied, that's what you'll look like. That is the message here. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Indeed, Reminding us, my God is merciful. My God forgives. That's why the psalmist can say in verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. He, rem he remembers that if you wash me, if you forgive me, I will be whiter than snow. And because I'm forgiven, I will be joyful. Joy, gladness, and rejoice. We see three positive words of praising here. Just like the three words of wickedness. The complete wickedness of man by the cleansing of God becomes complete praise into restoration and rejoicing. Because of the repentance of the man, because of the forgiveness of God, there is joy and there is gladness. Forgiven people should be the most joyful people. What do we have to be upset about? What do we have to fret and worry over? We've been forgiven more than we could ever pay. We are sinful down to our very nature. And our God has redeemed us. We should rejoice. Amen. Our God forgives our guilt. Cleanses our iniquity. 
and restores our sinfulness. Interesting language here, the second half of this verse. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. He breaks us to remake us. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Even in his broken bones, even in his brokenness, he knows that it is God who does it. He breaks us to remake us. Many times, if your bone is out of place, it must be broken so it can be reset. And if you've ever broken a bone, you know that where the bone breaks and then it heals, that becomes the strongest place the bone is. Why does it hurt? Why do I have to be broken so you can be healed? So you can be stronger on the other side of it. I have been broken so that I can be restored and so that I can rejoice. The psalmist, you can only understand rejoicing if you have been broken over your sin. And you know that it's God who broke you because he cares for you. Because he wants you to rejoice and not to remain in your sin. Rejoice in your broken bones and rejoice because Christ has made you new. Let's finish here in verse 9. Again, coming back to the iniquities. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. He knows he should rejoice. He knows that forgiveness is coming, but he still must remind God, I'm still a sinner. It's still before me. Hide your face from my sin. The last thing you want is God to look on your sin. Hide your face from it. Take it, take it away. Blot it out. Don't look at it. And our final gospel application here is that when you put your faith in Christ, his face is on Christ and his righteousness that has been given to us and his face is no longer on our sin. The good news of the gospel is that only through Christ are our sins taken away from God's eyes. And they are blotted out forever. Erased from the record, never to be spoken of again. In Adam, your sins are on your head. In Christ, they are on his. So as we close this morning, let's recap where we've been. We saw the cry of the psalmist, the problem, a sinful man before a holy God. We saw the confession of the psalmist, the guilt. The guilt is solely within man, and the guilt is solely against God. We saw the condition. The nature of man is depraved, sinful at conception, in need of new life. We saw the cure. The solution is blood cleansing and record erasing from God that brings rejoicing. So as we get ready to prepare for communion, I'm going to leave you with a few questions. And I'm going to leave you with a few moments to stand before you and sit before your God. Here are the questions. How do you view your sin? Do you view them like the psalmist does? Do you confess your sins and repent of your sins against a holy and just God? Do you know that the only hope for your sin is the cleansing and blotting out of your sin through the finished work of of Jesus Christ on the cross. Do you know that His work on the cross, the gospel is the answer to all the problems in this psalm and all the problems in our life? And do you praise Him 
And are you joyful because you have been forgiven? Take a few moments to pray and prepare your hearts to approach the table. Lord, purge us that we should be clean. Wash us. We shall be whiter than snow. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Let us be a broken and rejoicing people. Let us recognize our sin and our guilt before you. Our judicial problem of guilt. Our spiritual problem of our very nature. And our behavioral problem of our very sin. It is ever before us and it is ever before you until Christ takes it. Lord, for those of us who have put our trust in Christ, let us rejoice, let us know that we are free from guilt. We are free from the condition of our nature. We are free from the burden of our sinful actions. But repentance must be the daily rhythm of our lives. Lord, help us in this moment to prepare our hearts to approach your table. That we would rightly examine ourselves, rightly understand our sin, rightly understand your holiness, and rightly understand our need to be reconciled to you. And if we approach this table, let us do it joyfully. Let us rejoice that we get to do this. That we are considered loved by you, a merciful God shed the blood of His only Son and did not spare the body of His only Son for wretched sinners like us. It is in His name we pray. Amen.